We've been, uh, been working through this story. We took some breaks. We had some special guests who came. It was great to have them with us. Last week, we took a pause just to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. But now we're jumping back into the story. We'll probably be here for a little while uh, longer. We have 52 weeks in this series. This is t- week 24, and so we're a little bit right about at the halfway point. And what we've been doing, if you haven't been here with us, is we're just walking through the story of the Bible And seeing how all these little stories that we've known have been growing up in church since we were little, how do all these little stories all fit together to tell this one big story, primarily about God, and then secondarily about us, and how we can be reconciled to him through Jesus. And what we see is at the end of every little story, and at the end of the big story, it's all about Jesus. And that's where we're working toward. And so uh, I got some, some fun for you this morning, where we got a new motion. I know you're all just super pumped about this. Uh, we've got the promised land. They're going to take some Canaanites out, so everybody put your fists up. And it's time for some conquest. All right, here we go. So see if we can remember from the top, we've got God, creation, Fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, and conquest. All right, excellent. Um, anyone in here have one of those weeks? You know, you know what I'm talking about where it's like, man, I, I woke up in a full sprint on Monday morning and I haven't stopped since. It's been one of those crazy weeks of work and sports and and, and kids and and church, and it's just been chaos. And at the end of the week, you find yourself, like my boy Sheldon here from the Big Bang Theory, uh, trying to catch a breath. And maybe you're a young mom, and I know my sister this morning, her daughter had her up at 3 a.m. and has not fallen back asleep since. Uh, You know, you've got the the child waking you up at 5 a.m. saying, Can I have a snack, please? And since then, it's been diapers and crackers, right? And you feel like this lady, right? You're ready to take someone out. Maybe you're, the, maybe you're, you're going to work. You're the mom or you're the dad, and you're working 12-hour days. We've got crazy shift work here in Alaska. And you come home, and all you have time to do is fix the sink and grab something to eat, tuck the kids in bed, and collapse in your own. And if you're like me, I mean, maybe it's been more than a crazy week. We've had a crazy month here at the church. Three straight weekends, we were hosting people from out of town, the Stubberts and the Trenners and the gang from off the wall. And we had two retreats to prepare over that time. I've, I've called approximately eight zillion pa- uh, references for our family pastor hire. Um, we've had hospital visits, visits, budget planning, meetings, Easter Sunday. Um, oh yeah, I'm preaching. And at the end of it all, it's the stress level that seems unbearable at times. And on top of all of that, man, we've got sin, we've got temptations that are beating us down, the failure when we give in to those temptations. Anybody in here just need a nap, right? Actually, what we're going to do this morning, it's a sermon on rest, so we're just going to pick up the chairs early, put them to the side. I've got blankies and warm milk for everybody, and I'll wake you up in 45 minutes. How's this? That would be a great sermon. Uh, No. No, you get it? No, you're supposed to say no, preach the word. That's okay, all right. Um, let's look at this promise. In the midst of the craziness, in the midst of our sin, God gives us this promise in Hebrews 4 that we cling to this morning. There's a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did. 
after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter into that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. So there's this promise here. That there's a rest for us today as believers if we obey into entering into that rest. But we can also make the choices Israel's made and not enter into that rest. Man, doesn't that, do we not want to, to, to experience God's rest? Doesn't that sound amazing? Well, today we're going to poke around at how we can discover entering into that rest. If you remember from our last lesson, we looked at how Israel's journey parallels our journey as believers. There's this kind of symbolism going on. And we said that in Egypt, they were in bondage to sin, or they didn't have an option. They had to do what the Egyptians said. They were slaves by definition. And you and I, before we've come to know Jesus, there's only one option for the unbeliever, and that's to sin. It's the only thing we can do. We're slaves to to our own sin. But then what happens in the story is there's this Passover, and they, and they put the blood of the lambs on their doors, and the angel of the Lord passes over them, spares them judgment if they killed that lamb in their place. And then they cross over through the Red Sea into a, into a new hope, into a new life as God's people. And you and I, we've been saved by the blood of the lamb because of what Jesus did for us. And if we put his blood on the doorposts of our heart, God passes over us in judgment. And we've been given this new life as believers, new relationship with God, with other people. But then what we saw in the story was they were told to go to, to, to Canaan, right? And they said, you're going to spend a year in Sinai, there at the bottom of the peninsula, going to give you the law, tell you what I want life to look like in Canaan, and then we're going to go up into Canaan. And what should have been an 11-day journey turned to be 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Why 40 years? Why not just the 11-day journey? And we saw this two weeks ago. It was because of their unbelief. Because Israel failed to believe God. They looked at the giants, they looked at the walls, and they said, we can't do it. And instead of putting their eyes on the promise keeper, they put their eyes on their circumstances and said, we can't do it. And so they wandered as punishment. They were not able to enter the land. And for you and I today, man, if we keep our eyes on our circumstances, and we look, we walk by sight, we walk at what, what we see, all we're going to experience, and we said this, is fear, and anger, and complaining. If my life's marked with that, that's because I'm, I'm walking by sight, not by faith. And this morning, what we're going to see is how Joshua leads the people into the promised land after 40 years, and they're going to finally experience what it can look like to rest in the promises of God. And, and, and for us as believers, you know, my hope this morning is that we can learn some lessons from the stories here in Joshua so that you and I can experience God's rest that he intended for us in the midst of our crazy schedules and in the midst of sin that so easily entangles us. So today we're going to look at the book of Joshua. Now, we spent, so far, those first 23 lessons, we worked through those first five books of the Bible, uh, what we call the Law or the Pentateuch, and today we're jumping into Joshua. This is the first of the history books. Now, we're going to really speed the process up, and in the next seven weeks, we're going to wrap up the Old Testament, okay? So in case you were wondering how we were going to finish this before 2025, we're really going to start doing an overview here. Uh, We're really going to start moving. uh, Fear not, okay? So... Um, you remember Joshua. Joshua was the guy. There were, there were 12 spies. Two of the guys, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, 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 we can take these fools. Not because we're stronger than the Canaanites, but because God's promised us the land. 
And God can do what he says. And so Joshua, one of these guys who did believe since the beginning, who is able to enter the land, who didn't die in the wilderness, he has been appointed by God to lead these people into the promised land that he had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what we're going to see in, in the book of Joshua this morning, there's two parts. The first 12 chapters are conquest. I think that's your first blank in your, in your sheet. Uh, the conquest of the land. And they're going to take out all these enemies. The second uh, 12 chapters is the settlement of the land. I'm going to be honest. It's, it's boring. We're going to skip over that part. It's just, okay, you, this tribe is here, this tribe is here. God had allotted the different areas of Canaan for each of the 12 tribes. And so he's going to give that. I, I've heard it said to the first half of Joshua, it starts with a shout. They take on, it's a lot of war, they're taking people out, and then the second half, it ends with a sigh. And at long last, the people of Israel are going to experience rest in the land after hundreds of years of slavery and wilderness wandering. And what we're going to find this morning for us is what I call a recipe for rest. How you and I today, in the midst of the craziness of, of life and of sin, that we can find a rest in Jesus. So we're going to look at the, the ingredients for this recipe. First thing we're going to see in Joshua chapter 1 is, um, the first ingredient is, is trust. All right? This is the first ingredient if we want to find rest in our lives. And at the beginning of Joshua in verse 3, I picture this. This is God and, and Joshua talking. It's this really cool moment. He says, I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you will be on land I have given you. And I picture them like sitting on a cliff and their legs are swinging and they overlook the land of Canaan. He says, everything you see, I thought of, if you're a weirdo like me, your mind goes to the Lion King. And Mufasa tells Simba, everything the light touches is all kingdom, right? And he goes, uh, he, he says, everything you see here, this is the land I'm giving you. This is the land I've been promising you since clear back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And at last, it's going to be yours. And then when he tells Joshua, he says three times, be strong and courageous. And when he repeats himself three times, why? That's got to sink in. Why does Joshua, why do the people need to be strong and courageous? Because what they're about to do is going to be terrifying. They've got to go to war against all these nations. Most of them are bigger and stronger than the Israelite army. And so he says, be strong and courageous. Well, what does that mean? And, and where does Joshua, where do the people find their strength? Where do they find their courage? And I think they're going to find it in two places if you read these next verses. The first place they're going to find it is in the presence of God. And the second place they're going to find it is in the promise of God. This is what he says to him. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. Why? For I will be with you. Why? Because you're stronger than them? No. Why? Because Joshua is a great military tactician and he can take them out? No. Why? Because you're so good looking? No. Why? Because I am with you. And then he says, as I was with Moses, I will not fail you or abandon you. I promised you this land and I'm not going to go back on that promise. If God made a promise, he sees it through to the end. He says, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And when Jesus tells us to come and follow him, he is not promised it's going to be rainbows and butterflies. If you want that kind of a message, go listen to Joel Osteen, all right? That's not what we're going to talk about here this morning. Jesus says, the way is narrow. Pick up your cross. Die to self. Hey, you want to follow me? This is not going to be easy. So, so the reason you're going to be strong and courageous is not because this is a walk in the park. The reason you can be strong and courageous is because Jesus says, I am never going to leave you. I am never going to abandon you. 
and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Let's go. Follow me. So the first ingredient is trust. The second ingredient is obedience, to obey. To obey. Look at verses 7 and 8. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or the left. Right or left. Right or left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in everything you do. The next thing God says, the next ingredient, he says, if you want to enter into my rest, then you've got to do what I tell you to do. Because he's going to ask them to do some crazy things in the land. And how do they know what God wants them to do? Well, some of the times he's going to audibly speak, and he's going to, but, but for the most part, he says, the book of instruction. God wrote, that's what we just went through, the five books we call the Pentateuch, it's the law. He gives them 613 commands, and he says, if you follow these rules, if you follow this law, then you're going to be blessed, you're going to be given this land, you're going to stay in the land, just do what I tell you to do. And in fact, it's interesting, they're no longer going to be led by a, a pillar of uh, fire or cloud anymore. What they do is they start to enter the land. They have the Ark of the Covenant, and these priests are going to lead them. And in the Ark of the Covenant is what? It's the Ten Commandments. It's one of the key things that's inside the Ark. And, and that is a symbol for God's Word. They're going to be led by the Word of God. You ever tried to build something without instructions? Be honest. Men. All right. I can't even build a Lego set without instructions, okay? I, I, mine look like this if I try to do that myself. <laughs> and you imagine, <clears throat> I open up the box um, from Ikea or whatever. Oh, Lord, impart to me your wisdom that I may know what it is for your will of how this chair shall be built. I was talking King J, KJV when I pray. Um, and what's God's answer going to be to me? Read the instructions, Einstein, right? It's written out for you. You look at the written instructions and you'll know what it is that you're supposed to do. How do I know God's will for my life? How do I know how it is that I enter into his rest? I gotta stay in the book. I gotta know his word. There are specific promises for me in the word, but if I don't know them and I don't go back to them, man, how easily I stray from center. His book is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And God says, Joshua, if you guys want victory in this land, if you want to find my rest, you trust my presence and my promise, and you obey what I tell you to do. Number three, the third ingredient is to stand. Stand. We see they're going to cross the Jordan here. Now, you imagine being Israel. You get this sweet pregame pep talk, like, yeah, strong, yeah, courageous. We're going to do this. We're going to take out the Canaanites. We're going to take over the land. We're going to have rest at long last. And the next thing they see when they turn around the band, it's a huge river. And you go, what in the world? How are we going to get across this thing? Now, there's no toll bridge, Okay. And this thing is, 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 at best, it's 40 uh, feet wide. But when they came up to it, most likely it was during the flood stage. And during flood stage, the Jordan River could get up to be as much as a mile wide and 150 feet deep, okay? You're not swimming this thing. And so, so they go, how in the world are we going to do this? How are we going to cross this river with 3 million people? And God tells them, and, and the instructions are absurd, it says, as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So this is his, this is his game plan. He says, when you get to the edge of the water, just stand there. Don't swim. Don't build a bridge. 
Okay, remember Oregon Trail and all your options? I was always Ford. That's all, you always risk it. Just go for the Ford. He said, no, you're not. All I want you to do is stand right where you are. Don't do anything. And the, the cool picture here is, is, man, God's telling him, them, and he's telling us today, there is nothing you can do to enter into my rest. I'm going to do it for you. And, and there's this huge river, and it's the highest tide of the year. Do you think that's a problem for the creator of the universe? And it's so cool because the same way that they were saved out of Egypt is the same way that they enter into the rest. God parting water for them to pass through. And it's the same thing for us today. The only way we can enter his rest is by his presence and his power. And we do what he tells us to do. We stand there and God will bring us into his rest. So now they're in the land. They crossed the river. But it's far from over, right? Because what comes next? A bunch of bad guys. You look at uh, Joshua chapter 3 through 12, there's going to be some conquest. Now, there's a problem in the land. There are enemies, and there are enemies everywhere. You can't have rest when you're living next door to your enemy. And so the next step, the final ingredient here for rest for them is to purify. They have to get rid of all of these other nations, drive them out of the land. And and God tells them to do this in chapter 3. It says, Today you will know that the living God is among you. He will surely drive out the Canaanites, the stalactites, right? He just goes on and lists all the the ites. He said, you're going to drive out all of these people. Now this brings up a weird thing to discuss, right? It's kind of an awkward, and we don't have time to dive deep into this, but is God advocating murder here? Like, we get into the complicated discussion of war and what that looks like, and I just want to put a couple things for us to think about. We don't have time to get into the theology of this, but first of all, God is doing something very unique here in the history of the world, with, with the nation of Israel in particular. They are a political entity, meaning they are a country, okay? That's what he's developing them into. And he's going to use this country for some specific purposes, and he's going to take this country and through war drive out some of these other countries. But that is not what he's doing today, okay? You and I, we are not forming Christian land where we make this Christian nation and we wipe out the pagan nations, We are called the church, which is the called out ones from every tongue, tribe, and nation to make one body in Christ that's called to go out and make disciples, preach the gospel, and love our neighbor like ourselves. That's our call. We're not called unleashed into a holy war. So we don't just make it, America is not the new Israel. You can't just transfer that over. But the other thing I want to point out here is what God is doing is is not just keeping a promise to the nation of Israel by giving them the land, but it's a punishment to the people who are in the land. Look at Deuteronomy. It says, after the Lord your God has done this for you, the context is I'm going to give you this land, this promised land. After he's done this for you, don't say in your hearts the Lord has given us this land because we are such good people. We've been reading the story. We know Israel is not a bunch of good people, right? It's because of the promises of God. And then what he says is, no, it's because of the wickedness of the other nations that he is pushing them out of your way. So part of this is his promise to Israel, but the other part of it is punishment toward these wicked nations that have turned their back on God. And the the wages of sin is what? It's death. So anybody who has sinned, God is just in taking their life. This is not God being unjust. This is the just punishment for for sin, for people who have turned their backs on God. 
And I also want to point out, you know the story of Rahab, a prostitute, surely not a good person on paper. But when she, by faith, harbors the spies because of her faith in God, what happens? God spares her. And, and the whole story from start to finish has been being saved by faith through grace, both the Jews and the Gentiles. And we'll find in the story, even if it's a Gentile, if they put their faith in God and his promises, God spares their life as well. So then in Joshua 6, the first nation they come up to is the people at Jericho. Now, archaeologists say this is the largest, uh, the first walled city that they've ever found um, with these kind of walls. And, and what happens is they come up to it, and you think, finally, right? Finally, we get to the good part. We're going to start taking these guys out. If you're Israel, I'm sure there's, there's, there's a scary part of it, but you're also excited. You're on God, what's the game plan? Let's huddle up. Are we going to flank him from the east? Are we going to sneak attack? How are we taking Jericho out? And he goes, no, go get the marching band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I want you to do is I want you to march around the city, the walls, okay, one time. Next day, do the same thing. Six days in a row, go around the city. And then the seventh day, they're like, all right, march around it seven times. And at the end of these seven times, I want you to blow these trumpets and yell really loud. And then the walls are going to come crumbling down. Can you imagine being Israel in that moment and going, this is your game plan, God? But what I think God is showing them here is, is if this is going to happen, look at what he says in verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its kings, and all its strong warriors. I'm going to take them out, and I'm going to do something so absurd that there's going to be no way that you beat these people except for the fact that I was the one that did it for you. Now, we don't know. Some people suggest it could have been an earthquake. We can't figure it out. All we know is God, after they blew the trumpets and they yelled, the walls came tumbling down. And the people go in and they burn it to the ground. And God gives them the victory. And what we know their part was faith. Hebrews 11. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. So their part was to believe that God was who he said he was and would do what he said he would do. And God took care of the rest. And in our lives, how do we make this parallel to us as believers? God has never asked us to knock down the walls of sin on our own. Even as a believer, we don't go out trying to fight sin in our own strength. What we do is, just like Israel, we believe in God and we stand in the victory that Jesus has already given us. Jesus has already defeated sin and death. There's no victory left to be fought. We just stand. Look at Galatians 3. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? He's talking to these Galatians who are, who are going about the Christian life legalistically. He goes, did you save yourself? No, God saved you. So how are you going to grow in your faith? Are you going to do it yourself in your own effort? No, it's the Holy Spirit producing Christ's life in you. Our job is to stand. His job is to win. And the Christian life is from start to faith, faith start to finish, faith in Jesus. And then what he says after they burned the city to the ground. This is, what he, this is, his, 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 uh, his command. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Now, if you've read this story, you know why this is important. He says, there's a few, he, he did say there's some gold and silver that you can set aside for me to offer for me as, a, as an offering, but don't take any of it for yourself, or else you're going to have some big trouble coming your way. 
And one thing I wanted to point out before we move on is uh, this is a picture at Jericho, and this is actually the north part of the wall. This is the only part of the wall that archaeologists have found that was left intact. Now, the cool thing about this is this is very likely, just looking at the geography, where the spies would have entered into the land to spy it out. And this is very likely where Rahab would have lived. There was actually housing structure built up against these walls. And we don't know it for sure, but it's very likely that Rahab, who harbored the spies, and, and, they, and God said she will be spared because of her faith, that this could have very easily been the one part of the wall that stood the test of time. It's so cool when archaeology uh, jives with what we, uh, the, the Bible says. And we know this in Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed, and the people in her city who refused to pay, with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. So here's Rahab, spared because of her faith in God. So they beat Jericho. Now they go on to the next battle. And doesn't it often happen that our biggest defeats come after our greatest victories? Because we get this mountaintop experience. We experience a victory in our lives, and we're like, yeah, I got this, right? We're good. But watch what happens here. It all quickly falls apart. They send some spies to the next town, Ai, and this is the report. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since there are so few of them, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. They say, Ai, small name, small people, small problem. All right? Send us up. We'll take them out. We don't even need to send everybody. Just a little flank. We'll go get them. Well, you know the story. What happens? They go to Ai, and they get destroyed. All right? They get sent back packed, and in fact, 36 of the men die in the battle. And what happened? After they took out a huge place like Jericho, man, Ai shouldn't be any problem. But what we know from the story is this one man named Achan, when they're in Jericho, he gets some eyes, and he sees some goods, and instead of setting them apart for God, he steals some things for himself. And because of that disobedience, the entire nation experiences defeat at the next city that they've been told to wipe out. This is what God says. Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things from among you. It says you will never experience victory. You will never experience rest in the land so long as you're disobeying me. Because you're hiding something from me. I mean, I think about in my life, if we have unconfessed sin, and even the smallest of victories is impossible. We've got, to, we've got to come clean with what's really going on in our hearts. And I think how many men, how many pastors even, sadly, have, have their families have come to an end, their, their ministry has come to an end because of addiction to pornography, because of adultery. And you've got this one sin in your life, and you think you can hide it from everybody else. But if we continue to hide that thing, if it goes unconfessed, then it not only, it not only can bring you down, but it can bring everybody else down around you. I mean, Israel lost 36 men in this battle because of Achan's sin. Think about that. 36 families now no longer have a father, no longer have a husband because of Achan's sin. And man, we are not an island. My sin affects my family, it affects my church family, it affects those around me. And we've got to get rid of sin in our lives. God takes sin seriously. And sin is not to be managed, it is to be put to death. But again, that's not me killing my sin, that's standing in Jesus' victory for me. So you see this pattern in Joshua, we don't have time to get into the other battles, but you see this, this simple pattern. When they rely on God, there's victory. 
And when they rely on themselves, there is defeat. And you go through the rest of the story, and that's the pattern. You trust me, it's all good. You don't, and you're going down. And at long last, okay, it's messy, there's ups and downs, but at long last, they are finally given victory and have rest in the land. Look at, look at God's words. I love this in Joshua 21. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had solemnly promised their ancestors. None of their enemies could stand against them, for the Lord helped them conquer all their enemies. He gave them the victory. Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken Everything he had spoken came true. Now, obviously, this wasn't a perfect road, and nor, is, nor will ours be, okay? It's, it's, our, our, our path to growth is not every single day we get one step better, okay? The Christian life is going to look like this, all right? And it's going to be messy, and there's going to be days and seasons of victory and days and seasons of defeat. That's just how it is. But God will always finish what he starts if we, if we trust him. And so then the tribes, they get, and, and we're not going to get into it here, but this is kind of what the land allotment looked like. Each tribe was given a certain area, except for the Levites, whose their job is the priests. Um, they, they are given other things, but not a part of the land. And so they each get a part of the land, and there's peace. But you come back next week, and we'll quickly figure that does not last for long. You ever read the book of Judges? Okay, it's a mess. And the people quickly go back to their own way. But what are some lessons here as we wrap this up? What are some lessons we can learn from the people of Israel in their quest for rest. Hey, um, I don't know of a better place to start in this discussion than in my own bathroom. Um, this is just where my mind goes. Um, when I started doing this whole paleo thing and reducing, I, my, my role first said you got to reduce weight and you got to take care of the inflammation in your hips. And so I got this scale. I never weighed myself before, you know, except for like going to do a, uh, what was it called? Physical. Uh, and so... <laughs> <laughs> I do regularly. Um, so I got this scale to mark my progress. Now, I was losing a lot of weight at first, okay? And so I didn't really notice this. But what happened, what I found after a few weeks, I'm, I'm like flatlining at best, but I'm, I'm starting to gain weight. I'm like, I'm eating turkey and diet lettuce, and, and I'm gaining weight? Like, are you kidding me? Like, what? I'm so mad. And then I realized, I look back and I, I finally look at it. I'm like, oh, this scale doesn't go. It needs to be recalibrated. It's not going all the way back to zero. So every few days, I'd have to adjust this little knob on the scale uh, to bring it back to zero. Now, here's my point. Here, you and I, we need to, the reason we need to pay so close attention to the story of Israel is because our hearts are like Israel's hearts. And, and, and the needle, and I'll, I'll talk for myself, there's a tendency in my heart, my default position is for my, the needle of my heart to move away from sufficiency in Jesus towards sufficiency in myself. And, and I can feel that. I can feel that a song, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's me. That's my heart. And, and my natural tendency is to do things in my own strength, my, my own way, that I'm going to be my own God. And here's the deal. When I'm operating under my own self-sufficiency, it doesn't work. When I do that, I don't find rest. I don't find victory over sin. I find nothing but weariness and defeat and frustration. Man, I'm back to wandering in the wilderness. Now, here's the reality. Life isn't slowing down for anybody. 
our busy schedules, spoiler alert, those don't stop, okay? Here's what your next month looks like, okay? Just get ready. And your to-do list is not going to stop. You always hear people, oh, this is just a busy time of year, right? It'll get better. This is just, you know, it's just indoor soccer season. Well, and then there's summer, and we'll have family, you know, and there's vacations, and it's fishing time of the year, and you know how it is. And then, back, then we're back to school. And then before you know it, it's Christmas. It's just a crazy time. It's always a crazy time of the year. That's just how it is. And so if we're going to find rest and peace, it's not going to be once the craziness settles down. It's going to be how do we find rest in Jesus in the midst of the craziness? <laughs> I knew I'd get an amen from Ron on that one. Now, I do, and hear me here, I do think Sabbath day is important. There's a rhythm that God designed. While I don't think for us there's this legalistic 24-hour period of time, I do think it's important to say no in our lives. I do think it's important to carve things out and to set aside, that's what we're doing this morning, is to set aside aside time for worship, to set aside a time for, for rest, take a nap, go to sleep for more than five hours. But beyond that, I think just like the tabernacle, we said that the tabernacle was a symbol, a shadow of the reality of Jesus. The Sabbath day rest was a shadow of rest in Jesus. We as believers, it's not just rest on a day, it's rest in a person. We find our rest in the person of Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, there's a rest for us that's not just one day out of the week, but this rest, and hear this, This rest that we can have in Jesus is 24-7, 365. So how do we find this rest in Jesus? In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the schedules, in the midst of the temptations. And how do we recalibrate our heart back to zero and find rest in Jesus? And I want to make this super practical here at the end. Because I know this concept of resting in Jesus can be super abstract. And so what, what I want to just say is the, the, the best way that I know to rest in Jesus in my own life that I've seen is to have a relationship with him. And what does a relationship look like? Well, like with anybody, it's talking to him and listening to him. And what, what I've got to figure out to do is how to incorporate a relationship with Jesus into the rhythm of my daily and weekly and monthly life. Because if if there's no interaction with him, if I'm not talking with him, if I'm not listening to him, I'm not resting in him. And and my heart has, has the the needle has gone back towards self-sufficiency, and I'm wandering in the wilderness. So how do we do this? And I want to say this. I listened to a sermon recently by Matt Chandler, and he was talking about Sabbath rest. And and I like the way he said it as he was walking through the example of his own life. He said, everything that I'm about to tell you what looks like in my life, it's messy and it's inconsistent. So, so, so my walk with Jesus is messy and inconsistent. And, and the, the things that I'm trying to incorporate into the rhythms of my life, man, it's not every day. In fact, a lot of times I'm failing more than I'm not. But a couple things that I've found in the rhythms of my life is, man, first of all, if I'm going to set aside some time with Jesus, it's got to be first thing in the morning. It's the only way I'm going to consistently get that in there. And so what I do, and, and you've got some of you weirdos who love getting up early, okay? I don't know what's possessed you, but for the normal people who don't like to wake up early, one of the things that I found, if I get up and I just walk over to the couch to start praying and reading my Bible, I'm going to go back to sleep, right? I've done it. I, I know that's what I'm going to do. So what I did for a while was I just literally started walking with Jesus. I'd go for walks in the neighborhood and read and listen and, um, and pray. But then my hips started going south, so that wasn't an option anymore. So you know what I actually just started doing? I started praying in the shower. And, and so what I do, and, and I'm in an apartment, so I don't have to pay for my own water, so that's good. Um, but... I guess my landlady's in here. I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, 
<laughs> Good confession. Um, so I would just pray. I'd go and it just to start my morning off to wake myself up in the shower and to kind of recalibrate my heart toward Jesus' sufficiency. Is to literally just in the shower, just think about God and to start talking to him. And I got a list of people that I pray for kind of each day so I make sure I kind of remember people in my life and think about others, get my mind off myself. And then I just, I think and kind of pray over my schedule. This is what I'm doing today. I got to get up and preach a message today, Lord. And if, and if this is going to be anything, this has got to be you. So I'm looking to you for wisdom. I'm looking to you for the power this morning. And I recalibrate my heart off of self-sufficiency back to Jesus' sufficiency. And then I spend some time in the Word, and I try to spend, you know, whatever, 20, 30 minutes in the Word in the morning. And if you have been a part of our group, we've had the Own It 365 we've been reading through, and that's been a great way to kind of steer me daily back into the Word and to remind me of the promises of God and to, to, to apply. I say, God, how can I apply what I'm reading today? To, to think differently, to act differently, and to know you more. And then throughout my day, one of the things that I've found really helpful that I've started to incorporate recently is, is what I call these little recalibration prayers. Because throughout just one day, I can have this time with him in the Word, and everything's great, and then I take a step into the meeting that morning with somebody that I can't stand, and it's right back to where I was in the flesh. And so throughout the day, man, I've found like when I'm driving from one place to another— it's a great time, just a little 30-second prayer here or a little 30-second prayer here. And I say, God, I'm going into this meeting, and it's going to be tough. And if anything good's going to come out of this meeting, it's going to have to be me resting in you. And I'm going to come, maybe you're going to come home after a long day, and you're coming home to a family, and the walls are, you know, all crashing around you. The kids are going crazy, dancing on the dining room table. And you say, Lord, I need your patience. Lord, I need your love. And we recalibrate our hearts. See, praying without ceasing, I don't think it has to mean you're literally talking out loud 24-7, okay? And I mean, ever have tried to have a conversation with somebody who's praying to Jesus out loud? Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for that we had a good day today. And you never stop praying all day? That wouldn't work. But my heart attitude, if it's in prayer, I find these little pockets of time throughout the day. And I'm going from one thing to the next. And I just recalibrate. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. And then weekly, that's what we're doing here this morning. We're recalibrating our, our wandering hearts by putting Jesus at center stage and singing to him, singing about him, looking at who he is in his word. And there's these rhythms in our life. And here, here's just the practical step to take this week. And what's one thing that you can incorporate this week into the rhythm of your life to recalibrate your heart back to Jesus? For me, this last week, it was getting up a half hour earlier. I found that I was starting to sleep in more and more and more, okay? That's what I love to do. And some of you with kids, that might mean having to get up an hour, a half an hour earlier than them, suckers, right? I don't know what, you know, and, and wherever, you know, it's going to look different for everybody, but we've got to say what, I mean, you don't have to go join a monastery this week, okay? You don't have to jump off, just say, what's one little thing that I can do throughout the week change my patterns so that I rest in Jesus? That's the only place we're going to find victory and we're going to find peace. Last, last verse here, and then we'll be done. Jesus, this is the promise that Jesus gave us. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Is there anybody this morning that's weary? Anybody here carrying a heavy burden? You're exhausted. You're burned out. Sin is beating you down. He says, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Father, we come this morning in the midst of the craziness, and each one of us in this room, if, if somebody asked us after church how we're doing, very likely we'd answer busy. We've all got crazy schedules. We've all, like Rana mentioned earlier, man, we've got things that, devastating things going on in our lives, painful memories. We've, we've, we've got sin. We've got temptation. We've got relationship issues. We've got everything, Lord. And what, what we seek to find is, that, Lord, how do we find rest in the midst of that? How do we find rest in Jesus? How do we find victory over sin? How do we find peace in the midst of chaos? And Lord, I pray this week that we would just be willing to obey you and just take one step forward. Whatever it is that you want us to incorporate into that rhythm, maybe it's just turning that podcast off in the car and a 30-second prayer. Maybe it's getting up a little bit earlier. Maybe it's finding a way as a family to be able to sit down and and, and read a little bit in the Word together. Whatever that is, that we would take that step because there is nothing sweeter. There's nothing sweeter than knowing Jesus knowing him as Lord, knowing him as Savior, and only in a relationship with you, Father, in the person of Jesus, can we experience the kind of rest and the kind of victory that you intended for us. And like Israel, you've not asked us to win the war. You've asked us to stand at the river, to shout the name Jesus at the walls of sin, and you will give us the victory. You will give us the rest. May we stand in the river and watch you lead us into your rest. In the sweet, restful, victorious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.